The reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 25. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else, who is now put in the position of an inquirer, say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you're saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. But, uh, but these chapters in particular... Um... Well, I think depending what, what our background is as Christians may raise all sorts of uh, questions. I'm just not sure we're going to be able to answer everything in a 30-minute sermon. But um, if you leave it left with questions, well, next time there's probably a little more detail on some of the things here. But uh, do come and ask uh, rather than wonder. That's a good thing to do.
But let me lead us in prayer as we begin together. Great God and Father, thank you. Thank you for your deep care for us. That uh, the, You've given us this large book, the Bible, with so many details to apply to our lives, so many things which are clear and obvious and central in the Christian life, some things which we're little uncertain quite what you mean, this side of heaven. But Father, thank you for your care. Help us to please carefully, rightly understand this passage this morning and relate to one another wisely, therefore we pray. Amen. Well, look, I wonder if I might start by asking a fairly blunt question, which is, um, look, why do you come to church? Why do you come? I mean, I'm paid to come, but why do you come? Now, look, there are numerous ways you can answer that question. Uh, I'm a Christian. Uh, uh, it's good for me. Uh, I, I like the people. Uh, I, I want to serve. I mean, there are numerous ways you can answer the question. But uh, certainly 1 Corinthians 14 is a passage that, that makes you ask that question. Why do you come? And it's important to know that to have some answers in your head for that. Sometimes we just do things just because we do them, because it's Sunday morning and that's what we do. Uh, and routines have their purpose, but why do you do them? Certainly when things of disruption come along, when something like a coronavirus comes along and anxieties continue to escalate, and you might ask the question, should I go to church today? Well, part of the way your answer that is, why do you go normally? Part of, not the only reason, but why do you go normally to church? on any given Sunday. Well, Paul would say you're here, well, to build up others. Now, you may not have spotted this as the issue in chapter 14. It's a slightly strange passage because Paul is, for the bulk of it, comparing two different spiritual gifts. Gifts of tongue, speaking in I'd say ecstatic languages, uh, and then the gift of prophecy. He's comparing those two, uh, with more detail on them as we work through the passage. Uh, and his insistence throughout really is that the gift of prophecy is far more important and useful, excuse me, far more useful than the gift of tongues. You think, well, okay, I'm glad I've come to hear that. I was always wondering which of the two was the most useful. I've spent most of my life in a state of flux upon that as a question. But the principle that drives his conclusion is, is, is timeless and uh, comes recurrently throughout. So end of verse 5, what Paul wants is that the church is edified. End of verse 12, try to excel in those gifts that build up the church or edify. It's precisely the same verb. They've just translated it in two different ways, to build up, to edify. Verse 17, yeah, you're giving thanks well enough. No one else is edified. That's the issue. You want gifts that edify, build up other people. And when we gather as church, Paul wants the church, the Corinthian church, us, to be concerned with what will edify, build up others. It's not the only thing that's going on as church. Perhaps to sort of try and roll it in together, we'd say, well, when we gather... Uh, as a group, as an assembly, we gather in the presence of God. He meets with us and he builds us up as we serve others. 
It's fundamentally his work, but he builds us up as we seek to build up others. Now, the chapter, we're half this week, half next week, the, the headings that the NIV editors have put on are, are not bad, actually. But verses 1 to 25, Paul is mainly concerned with saying, look, what happens when you gather as church? It's got to be intelligible. So I've um, decided not to speak in Latin to you this morning. I've left my Latin aside. But um, uh, it's got to be intelligible. Uh, and then 26 to the end of the chapter, it's got to be ordered. Those are the sort of the, the, the bulk of it. But in one sense, the, the, the whole chapter hangs together on this theme. I want people to be built up, to be edified. This morning, then, we're just going to work through uh, verses 1 to 25, pretty much in, in, as, as the sort of sections that Paul writes in, and then we'll draw mainly our conclusions at the end. Okay, so we're going to go through it like this. Desire gifts that edify the church, verses 1 to 5. Unintelligible tongues don't, verses 6 to 19. Uh, but prophecy, that's better, and it can bring conviction. Verses 20 to 25. Okay, so we'll work through it like that. Uh, and many of our conclusions were draw at the end. First, they did verses 1 to 5. Desire gifts that edify or build up the church. Chapter 14, verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. So those two imperatives have got to be held together. Follow the way of love, which he thought about in, in chapter 13, and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, but do so out of a concern to love others. Now, especially prophecy and not tongues. Well, why not? Verse 2, anyone who speaks in a tongue or language does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. Now, you can read a lot of books. No one really knows, in truth, what he means by tongues. The references only come here in this chapters 12 to 14 in 1 Corinthians and in Acts 2. And it actually seems that even those two places, they're different things. In Acts 2, uh, it's the day of Pentecost and uh, the believers stand up and they start speaking in languages that they hadn't known that morning when they'd rolled out of bed. All of a sudden, they're polyglots and, and they're speaking in Greek and, and, and Persian and Egyptian. And, and, and whoa, this is fun. What am I saying? I don't know, but uh, others seem to be understanding me. And they're human languages that the audience understands stands. Here though, verse 2, it's different because they're mysteries uttered by the Spirit and no one understands them. I mean, Corinth is a multicultural city like London is, but no one in the church is understanding this language that is spoken. It's not a human language, it's a mystery uttered by the Spirit. It's a language spoken, verse 2, to God, not to any other humans. And so in a setting like this, I take it there, there'll be a number here who have the gift of tongues. Some will, some won't. Not everyone has it. At the end of chapter 12, no one has not, there's not one gift that everyone has. So some of us will know that and will speak to God in a language and we don't know what it is. And we do it on our own sometimes. And it's a good gift, says Paul, and it's encouraging. But don't use it in church, is where he's going to get to. 
There is, um, it's not, it's sort of extra biblical, but the archeological and, and uh, uh, evidence from other texts is that at the time in the first century in the Medita- Mediterranean area, some of the pagan cults, they loved to sort of work themselves up into a frenzy somewhat chaotically and, and speak in ecstatic languages. And it may be that they've, they've sort of adopted that sort of habit in the church in Corinth from the world around them, maybe. And there's a bit of that going on. Who knows? Not so certain. So that's tongues. But prophecy, um, prophecy, I guess we're a bit more familiar with in the Bible. Certainly there's a lot more references to it in the Bible. Uh, I'm not going to say everything more on this uh, next time, but let me try and put three little pegs in the ground. In the New Testament, the first would be prophecy is not infallible, but it must be weighed, we're told. So not the same as Old Testament prophets who say, Thus says the Lord, and it's a direct word from God. And uh, if a prophet stands up and says something which isn't from God in the Old Testament, well, you kill them. Uh, If they stand up and say, thus says the Lord, and distract you from God, you kill them. It's pretty brutal, don't want to go there. But uh, it's absolutely authoritative in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, any prophecy has got to be weighed. So you get that at the end of our... Well, in next week's passage, but verse 29, two or three prophets should speak and the others should carefully weigh what is said. Or a similar passage, I don't know if we've got it, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, another letter where Paul's writing in 1 Thessalonians 5, may or may not come up. But uh, he says, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. Do you see the, the contrast there? Don't ignore any prophecy, whatever it may be, and and treat it with contempt, but nor just accept them all. You're meant to, the the, the contrast is you don't treat with contempt, but you test and hold on to what is good. So there's one little thing, peg to put in the ground. It's not infallible, it's got to be weighed. Uh, Another little peg with New Testament prophecy would be, uh, secondly, it's not authoritative and can be ignored. So Acts 21, you get the prophet Agabus comes and tells the apostle Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you'll be bound and put in prison, so don't go. And Paul says, thank you very much, I'm going. And he is bound and he's put in prison. And he says it was still the right thing to do. So there's a word of prophecy, it's true, it's accurate, but it's completely ignored, and that's fine. So not infallible, not authoritative. Um, Another would be uh, here, it's not... In 1 Corinthians, it's not predictive about the future, but rather it's for building up. The, the, I mean, you can be. Agabus was saying, Paul, this will happen in the future. But here, verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort, all present tense. So it, it's not about what will happen. Okay. What is it, positively? Well, we're certainly told these three things, these three words, that it's, uh, verse 3, a word of prophecy will strengthen, encourage, and comfort. Slightly overlapping words. Uh, Strengthen, it's the same word as build up or edify, actually. It's the same root. You think of, I think of the time I, I broke my ankle, and uh, afterwards had a few months of going to see a physio, who helped strengthen my ankle? 
stand on a wobble board as they threw things at me and all those sort of uh, funny things you do with a physio. They, I was strengthened, built up, until what was weak became strong again. That, that sort of sense to it, strengthening. Uh, encouraging. Well, biblically has two senses to it, a sort of there, there, and a get on with it sort of encouragement. You just, same word, you just got to determine how it means. A, a parent could encourage a child by saying, you, let me sit next to you. I know you find physics hard, but let me do these equations with you and you can do it. No, you'll get there in the end. And it's sort of gentle encouragement. Or a parent could stand on the sidelines of a sports pitch and say, go on! And um, that's also encouragement uh, in a biblical sense. Just to, and it may be temperamental, which way you encourage, you know, which way you lean with your encouragement, or it may just be you're a wise parent and, and sort of lean which way is required at that moment in time, but encouragement. So it can be quite forceful, I guess, in that sense. Uh, and then the last other thing, comfort. A word of comfort or consolation. Word doesn't come up super amount of times in the New Testament, but we're told when Lazarus died, people came to his sisters Mary and Martha to comfort or console them. So that really is a tender word. Strengthen, encourage, comfort. And Paul says that that's what I want to see taking place when church gathers. So these two gifts then, they're contrasted, tongues and prophecy. And uh, verses 2 and 3, the, the, the contrast is fairly obvious. So tongues spoken not to people but to God, but a prophecy is spoken to people. Tongues unintelligible. Prophecy, everyone can understand it. Tongues only edify one person, the person speaking, verse 4. Prophecy edifies the whole church. So what does is, what is the word of prophecy look like? Well, I think, actually, I don't want to say everything that comes next week, but I think it's more often, it's, it's the personal word of encouragement, comfort. I think probably it's what takes place in small groups most weeks, or after a church service, you sit down and say, huh, it was interesting what the Bible said there, wasn't it? I wonder, it made me think of you, and um, maybe that means that for you. Um, you've got to be careful with that. You had a passage like last week, love is patient and kind. I, was, I heard that, and I thought of you. Um, that doesn't sound like a prophetic word. That sounds like a, a, a grudge, uh, an axe to grind. Um, so you need to be a bit careful with those sort of things. But, um, yeah, no, I, as I was sitting, listening to the word, I, or as we sat around in our Bible study, I might, huh, I wonder if, isn't that mean? Probably looks a bit like that. But look, desire gifts that edify the church. Paul says, look, tongues, yeah, it's a lovely thing, but do it on your own. It's no good when you gather. I want when the church gathers, I want people to be strengthened, encouraged, and comforted. So use gifts that do that. All right? Desire gifts that edify the church. Uh, then he's got a big negative section. I mean, clearly, uh, verses 6 to 19, uh, unintelligible tongues do not do that. Now, clearly, the Corinthians were obsessed with this, so he has to spend quite a lot of time. Uh, I don't want to spend that much time. I don't think we're, we're obsessed in the same way. But verse 6 is the headline. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you? Unless I bring you some revelation or, or knowledge or, or prophecy or word of instruction. 
And then you don't get prophecy until verse 22. He's just going to hammer the gift of tongues here in church. Nothing wrong with doing it on your own. Uh, You get these three little examples. Verse 7. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Okay, play name that tune. Who can name this tune? Okay, tell me what song I'm singing. Ba, 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 ba. No, there's no answer to that, for goodness sake. Don't miss the rhetoric. Don't. His point is that no one's got a clue what song that is. It's just the same note over and over again. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe I can't even hold the same note for 10 times in a row. That's entirely possible. Um, I, I accept that. Um, it's useless, he says. It's useless. Well, speaking in tongues in church is useless. Or, or verse 8, another example. If the trumpet doesn't sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Oh, no, the enemy's coming. Quick, blow the trumpet. <laughs> Well, that's not going to save anyone's life, is it, is his point. And then verse 9, it's like speaking in a different foreign language. Verse 9, so it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. You speak in tongues, you just like people from completely different countries who can't understand one another. It's as useful as me standing up and speaking Hungarian. Anyone understand Hungarian here today? No. Um, I was about to say something absolute gibberish and say, there, there we go. The, um, useless. Useless, he's saying. So as we say, unintelligible tongues don't build anyone up, they don't do any good. Now, I don't think, I say, that is not our issue really here as a church, I don't think. It's worth asking, are there unintelligible practices? Particularly you're here as a guest from another church or a guest who's not yet persuaded as a Christian. Is there stuff that you think, why do I think that? That's just odd. Please come and let me know. It's not meant to do that. Get the examples. A few more details, verse 13. Uh, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should, that they should pray, that they may interpret what they say. Well, that would be useful, I guess. This speaking in a tongue, it's clearly related in this following section to singing and praying. Verse 14, uh, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, so what shall I do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my understanding. I'll sing with my spirit. I'll also sing with my understanding. That's an interesting combination. Paul clearly wants both mind, understanding, same word, and spirit involved. And says, if you don't have your mind involved, what is that? You're likely to be deceived or you're not really engaged, to be honest. But if you only have your mind and not your spirit, the whole of you involved, it's a merely academic, distant exercise, which is also not really what the Lord is after. He wants your mind and your spirit when you pray, when you sing. 
Verses 16 to 19 really sort of uh, conclude or underline his point. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving? They don't know what you're saying. You're giving thanks well enough. No one else is edified. It's nice for you, but no one else benefits. Verse 18, he really puts the clincher on it. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So there. Um, I'm not only saying this because you've got a gift and I haven't got it. I'm better than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I think 10,000 words is, I don't know, two hours or something. I tried to work it out from sermon, how many words I used in a sermon, but I couldn't do it. Um, Five intelligible words better than two hours of listening to someone or a group of people speaking in tongues. Made me think, what would be my most useful five-word sermon? Jesus will take you home. I think it's good. Brackets, if you're a Christian. But um, your father knows your needs. I think it's a good sermon. Um, flee sin more than coronavirus. Um, uh, would be a useful sermon, probably. But do you get his point? I want people to understand what's being said so that they're built up, so that they're encouraged, so that they're comforted. And I can do more good in five words than two hours if people don't understand me, that's the point. Look, desire gifts that edify the church, unintelligible tongues, they do not. And then last he turns to another group, really to, to, to guests or unbelievers, and says, well, prophecy can bring conviction there. Verse 20. Here's a blunt comment. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but if in your thinking, be adults. In regard to evil, be infants, not as, not be, as in be naive or, or, or foolish or clueless, but in regard to evil, don't, just don't, don't go there. Avoid it. He gives in this slightly curious quote from Isaiah 28, in uh, verse 21 here. In the law, it is written... With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I'll speak to this people, but even then they'll not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, the context, we haven't quite got there. We'll return to Isaiah shortly. But um, uh, in the book of Isaiah, by the time you get to chapter 28, God's people, the Israelites, God has been speaking very clearly prophetic words, uh, 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 but so authoritative prophetic words, very clear in their language from Isaiah. They've been hearing from Isaiah for ages, very clear, straightforward words. And they've not listened. They've ignored the Lord. And so God says, okay, let me tell you what's going to happen. The Assyrians are going to invade. And then you'll hear foreign tongues, Assyrians. And not just because they're talking, but because they've broken into your city and they're killing your children. And, you know, it's, it's an invasion that's what's going to take place. So for in Isaiah's time, to hear the, 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 the other tongues is a sign of judgment. It's a sign you've been invaded. It's a sign you've been broken. So tongues are a sign of judgment back then. Why does Paul, why does Paul introduce this here? 
Well, it probably it seems that some in Corinth were boasting, come to our church services. They're wild. They're crazy. All sorts of amazing things are taking place. Come and see God supernaturally at work. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Because all that's going to do, if you bring guests into this sort of chaos where it's unintelligible and completely disordered, well, what's going to happen is, verse 23, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say, you lot, you're out of your mind. You're all nuts, is what's going to happen. By contrast, verse 24, if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, speaking into one another's lives, words of comfort, encouragement, building up, well, then they're convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all so the, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, wow, that's extraordinary. God is really among you. The contrast is very simple. I think if you, some people like a little table. Uh, but here's the contrast between what can happen. Uh, they're different signs. Can you read that? Does that come out on the screen? But tongues, then, it's a sign for unbelievers. It's a sign of judgment. And the outcome is they're going to say, well, you lot are out, you're out of your mind. Well, it's prophecy, it's a sign for believers, it's a sign of God being at work, and some guests will come in, fall down and worship, that is, they'll become Christians, because they'll say, surely God is among you. That's what he's saying. Why prophecy a gift for believers? I think because people can become believers, is his point. So this whole passage, you see, it's a slightly eccentric one in one sense to our ears, comparing these two gifts unintelligible languages from the Lord, and more next time, but he will say, it's fine, do it on your own. Lovely, it's a good gift, but not in church. Whereas prophecy, people speaking words of encouragement, comfort, consolation to each other, oh, that's what I want to see. Let me try and pick up some important principles then about church life that we can take away. Let me give you three. One, what can you learn from 1 Corinthians 14? You can learn a little something about purpose. It'll be the first, purpose. It seems when you read this that the primary focus of church is to meet with God and to encourage one another. And Paul expects there to be non-Christian guests at a meeting. So you want to hold together both those things? That The primary purpose is, is to meet together with the Lord and he will build up his people as they encourage one another. And guests will always be there. Paul expects both. So again, if you're here and you wouldn't yet describe yourself as a Christian, we don't design what we do primarily for you. But if anything is weird, please come and say, because that's not meant to be the case. Just to think about purpose. A little longer then, on, um, secondly, on attitude. This does challenge, I think, our attitude. When we come to church, we don't ask, well, what's in it for me? And we do ask, how can I encourage others? How do I build up others? And Paul would say, what you can't have is a church gathering on a Sunday for several hundred individual encounters with the Lord. It's not, it's not that that we all come and we all have our own thing going on with the Lord. That's not church, gathering healthily 
we come and we meet with him together collectively and we encourage one another and he builds us up as we do that together. Look at truth, I can only think of in however many years here, one person who's ever said to me out loud, this is either great honesty or great crassness, I don't know. Um, I'm only here for me and the Lord. So you say, I love taking the Lord's Supper. I hate it when anyone speaks to me afterwards. Um, and I hate it when we sing after the Lord's Supper because then I have to look around at other people. It's just me and God. That's what I'm here for. Why can't we just do that and get rid of everyone else? Um, that's an unusual to put it out loud, I think. Uh, but to slightly have that attitude somewhere in our hearts, perhaps, quite easy to think, oh, that child is ruining my worship. Oh, it's my child. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's quite, you know, it's, it's, so we can have that sort of attitude. Uh, right, come on, come on, you know, shut up, uh, because your time is up and, you know, I've got to get on to the next thing. Uh, yeah, that was good, see ya. I'm, I'm run out the door and flee on to the next thing. I don't, that's not right. Or just more prosaically, you roll over in bed and think, yeah, wow, I don't feel like it this morning. Yeah, but it's not about you so much. I mean, we come together to build up others. And as we do that, well, we benefit. But you ask the question, why am I going to church? It's not fundamentally for me. It's for others' sake. Because we're not here as spectators, we're here to play our role, our part in encouraging, strengthening, comforting. A uh, little thing on purpose, a little thing on attitude. Last comment, uh, just a very practical thing, some practical things. Look, I think if we take this seriously, 1 Corinthians 14, then coming to church takes a little bit of planning and thought. I mean, just a little bit more. And I know, I know, sometimes just getting here on a Sunday morning with every member of the family, not forgetting one, having cleaned everyone's teeth, including your own, etc. I know sometimes just making it here is a great triumph, uh, and uh, that's it. Uh, and there are certainly periods of life where it's like that. But however, just a little bit of thought. If I get to church a little bit early, I am probably more ready to receive from the Lord and in a better frame of mind to help others, probably. Even before that mayhap, you, you, as you shower in the morning and you think, all right, off to church, uh, anyone in particular I want to meet, want to say, speak something to, anyone in particular I want to encourage, catch up with, oh yeah, I need to speak to him, and da, 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 just a, a little bit of thought, planning, and probably there's going to be a whole lot more edification taking place. On the, uh, more of this next time, but on the issue, I think, of prophesying to one another, I think that means as you hear a sermon, as you sing, as we gather, be open to what God is saying to you personally. And also think, I wonder, is this something I need to, you know, is, is God encouraging me to say something, how this applies to the whole of the church? Come and tell me one of the other elders afterwards. Do I want to go and encourage? Look, I was, in that sermon, I really thought about Dot. And um, I'm going to go and encourage Dot because I've really thought of her and how she does lots of thinking of others. I think in many ways, it's after we have the final 
amen, uh, at the end of a formal time of a church gathering, that this work of prophesying takes place as we go around and speak words of encouragement and comfort and edification to one another. So don't waste that time. So there we go. Paul is saying, really, I guess, uh, don't just come to church asking what's in it for me. Come ready to build up other people. And that does take place in the normal activities of church. But look, when you sing, he'd say, how about, you know, Sing like you mean the words. That'll encourage others. It'll be good for them and for you. When you engage with the Bible, with God's word, well, speak about it with others afterwards. That'll build them up. When you listen and seek to listen to what other people are saying and seek to exhort, console, and encourage, it'll build them up. Because when you gather, he says, why are you here well, you meet in the presence of God and he'll be at work amongst us as we serve to build us up. So do that when you gather. Pursue the way of love and desire gifts that will build you up, he says. Let's pray to, let's pray to him. Our great God and Father, in one sense, this is so obvious to us. We follow a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for us. And so to come to church thinking, what's in it for me, is obviously not following our Savior. Father, would we come as those who are wanting to serve not be served. And Father, if we gather as church with a commitment to serve one another, what a wonderful place yeah, we will be. We thank you that in many ways that does happen each week, Sunday by Sunday. But would we um, become ever clearer in our minds that we are gathering to spur one another on, to build one another up, even as we meet with you. And so please, even in our time now, as we sing, as we conclude in prayer, and as we talk to one another, will we be about that work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.